Welcome back to Grounded in Story, our podcast that explores how we might raise healthy kids in a too often unhealthy world. I'm Sam Shapiro, head of school at Marin Montessori School, and we're going to spend the next 20 or so minutes digging into a topic that affects all parents and children, how to stay emotionally and psychologically healthy in a world that we can all agree makes those goals a challenge. To help us in this investigation, we are so lucky to welcome Professor Denise Pope. Denise Pope, PhD, is a senior lecturer at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education. She's also the co-founder of Challenge Success, a school reform nonprofit that partners with schools and families to embrace a broad definition of success and implement research-based strategies that promote student well-being and engagement with learning. Denise Pope is the author of Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students, published by Yale University Press, and the lead author of Overloaded and Underprepared, Strategies for Stronger Schools and Healthy, Successful Kids, published by Josie Bass. Dr. Pope is a three-time recipient of the Stanford University School of Education Outstanding Teacher and Mentor Award and was honored with the 2012 Education Professor of the Year Educator's Voice Award from the Academy of Education, Arts and Sciences. She's appeared on the Today Show, Nightly News, Good Morning America, and in the Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Denise Pope. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So as I as I mentioned, I've been such a fan um, of your work, specifically through Challenge Success, and this, this goal of helping school communities broaden their understanding of success and implement strategies that we know work that promote student well-being and engagement with their learning. What what really compelled you to start Challenge Success and what was the landscape like then? I forget what year we started, so you can remind us of that. And, and, um, and kind of what was the scene that you were looking at? Great question. So um, it goes back with a little bit of a story of my own here. So great, uh, great. let's do it. So my doctoral dissertation when I was getting my PhD in education was an ethnography. And that is a type of qualitative research where you follow um, a group of kids or you live in a community for an extended period of time. And what I did is I chose a pretty um, well to do uh, public high school in the Bay Area. And I was looking at what was working. I was looking at sort of schools that I had a great reputation and I was going to learn what was working and I could write about it and spread it to the world, world, spread it to the world. So I picked five students. The school helped me pick them really diverse and shadowed them for a year. And each student helped me write his or her own chapter. And what I found was these were really uh, sort of top students, considered a top school in the state. And I saw cheating. I saw sleep deprivation. I saw ulcers due from stress. I saw crazy parental expectations that the kids were trying to meet. Um, and this was across the board. I had kids from low SES uh, in that school that I was shadowing and also very wealthy kids. I had um, students of color and, you know, uh, you name it. So this is what happened. We, I wrote the book. I published the book. And the head of the health center at Stanford University at the time, which is where I was working, after my dissertation, I got a job there, 
called me into his office and he said, look, we have the aftermath of the kids that you shadowed here at Stanford and we want to create an intervention. And I said, well, I don't have the answers. This was just sort of, I was ringing the bell of alarm. Like, hey, we think these kids are really engaged and excited and they're really just doing school, playing the game and they're stressed out and they're not engaged. And if these are our future leaders, you know, this is not good. And he said, well, you don't have to come up with the answers alone. He said, let's call this meeting and let's like ask all these people from all these different departments to come together, psychology department and the health center on campus and the Center for um, Integrity and Ethics because of the cheating that I saw and the people at the School of Education. I literally thought no one was going to come to this meeting and 30 people showed up and I thought, oh, we're on to something. There's something here. They're seeing kids at Stanford, more kids than ever had to be on psychotropic medication, more kids than ever were ending up in the health center because they got the first low grade that they ever saw in their life and they didn't know how to handle it. Challenge success really came about because we're challenging that narrow notion of success, that everybody has to take the same path, that it all is this sort of march to the best college you can get into, to get the best job, to make the most money, right? And and if you talk to kids, that's a very common refrain when they talk about success is success is getting good grades, so that I can go to college, so that I can get a good job, so I can make money and be happy. Like they really see it in this linear way. And we know as adults that that is not the case. So much of what I appreciate about the work you're doing and Challenge Success does is it's it's sort of gently but clearly holding up a mirror to us to just sort of pause and step back and say, what do we really want for our kids <laughs> Right. What do we really want for them? And I think at the end of the day, probably most of us want our, our kids to be independent, to be able to be independent, but to to generally feel good about themselves and their lives. Yeah. To feel socially connected, to feel belonging, um, to, to, you know, to, to, to have lives of flourishing. And it's that myopic definition of only if they go here and then do this and get this, whatever it is will they be able to flourish, which we just know is not the case. Can you talk about, you know, what was, has, I guess maybe I'm assuming the landscape has changed, but that's not a fair, that's an assumption. Let me start with the question, like, has the landscape changed at all uh, in this 20 years in terms of what you're seeing um, that was the first kind of alarm for you 20 years ago? Yeah, no, the landscape has changed in some ways and in some ways it hasn't. So, so when I started this work in 2003, 2004, 2005, when we started to get workshops and conferences and schools to come through and designed our parent education, I had to convince people that this was a problem. I, I had to say, look, hello, our kids are not okay. And even though it looks like they're okay because they're getting good grades and they're making on uh, the soccer team and they're getting into college, lurking underneath is mental health issues and, you know, academic dishonesty and sleep deprivation and all of this. And so I was really ringing the alarm bell and trying to get people to listen. Now, people listen. Not only do they listen, they come to us because it's very, very clear it, it, even before COVID and the pandemic and and the referendum on race that's been going on, even before all the political division, it was clear the kids were not okay. I think there's a lot of things that adds to parent anxiety, right? Yeah. I think there's a fear that your kid isn't going to succeed and going to be living in your basement for the rest of your life. 
I think there's all these books telling you what to do and you can't live up to whatever that picture of the perfect parent is. You know, if you think like Pinterest. The Instagram parents, right? Yes, the Instagram parents. Um, And um, I think there is anxiety over a real uncertain world, right? We're in the middle of a war. There's political division. We've got crazy things going on in politics. All of this stuff, I, I have a slide that says pick a cause. Right. right. Pick a cause. Is it social media? Is it more kids than ever applying to college? Is it this uncertainty about the world we're living in? Is it this onslaught of information and we have to make our way through? Is it the economy? Right? Is it segregated neighborhoods? Pick a cause. Right. I, I'll let the historians duke it out. But the reality is parents are anxious. Kids are anxious. There's three things that challenge success that kind of are are, are our center hold, and that is well-being, uh, belonging, and engagement. Okay. And and those three things all correlate. So if you have a healthy child, meaning a kid who um, gets the right amount of sleep, which can we just start there? Sure. Could everybody just get the right amount of sleep? If you can't get out of bed in the morning because you're too anxious or depressed or sick, if you don't have time to exercise and eat healthy food and get the sleep you need, you're not going to be a success in the, in the sort of full sense of the world. It correlates with belonging. And I think that's where the family has a really major role as well. So the family obviously has a major role around the child's well-being, but belonging is this feeling that you are a part of a community, that you are a valued and respected member of a community. Obviously, we work with schools and do a lot around how to make kids feel like they're a part of a community. There's something called belonging uncertainty, which I think you can understand if you're so worried that you don't belong, your brain spends so much time worried about it that you can't possibly learn. You're just freaking out all the time, right? Um, think of middle school, like wherever you think, oh my gosh, is this person looking at me? Um, they don't like me. They don't like what I do. I'm not cool, right? Like, you spend so much time perseverating over that that you can't possibly learn your math or your your your, your English. So we're we're working on making people feel included and they belong. That means everybody. That means people can bring all of their identities to school and feel safe, right? But in a family, you also have to cultivate belonging. And people will say, well, what do you mean? We're part of a family. Of course they belong. Well, what makes someone feel like they belong in a family? Do you have family meals together? Do you do things as a family together with technology on, but with technology off as well? Do your, does everyone in your family do chores? Do they all participate in making the family home cleaner, better, safer, et cetera, right? These are just ways to foster belonging. We have a whole bunch of ways of that. So you have well-being, you have belonging. And then the third piece in our sort of what we would call success is engagement. Yeah. And at school, that's really clear, right? That's you, 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 you're into what you're learning. You find it enjoyable, exciting. It's meaningful. It has purpose. It's not busy work. You're not doing school. It's the opposite of doing school. At the home, what does engagement look like? You, again, you're sort of interested and curious. You, 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 you're engaged as being a member of the family. Um, your family helps you find purpose and meaning and, and cultivate the things that you're interested in. That's there's really profound levels to what you just said. Um, 
there a what I'm always the the kind of the uh, the fun example I give is like if your kid expresses a fascination with geckos, like go for it, you know, like go, go to the library, get the gecko books, go to the San Francisco Zoo, check out the gecko exhibit. It's unlikely that five or six year old will become a herpetologist, right? You know, maybe, right. but maybe. it's more about it's more about honoring their their being really honoring what's coming up for them is your sense of what matters to you is worthwhile is, is affirmable and i think i was talking to a dad um just this weekend and he was saying oh my you know my my this is a, pre, a preschool age child but my daughter's really shy and i could tell he was a little bit sad about that or embarrassed about that and i'm like you the first thing you she needs to know is that that's okay with you that she does not have to be any different in her nature than she is. And, and so when I hear you talk about engagement, I was starting to think about that. It's like, we see you as you are, as a unique individual, not us. You're not right, us. Right. It's and, affirmation, yeah. but it's also modeling curiosity, which we know is mm. one of the first things to sort of go away in school because you are told what to do. And you are told how to do it and you do this assignment and 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 it's different in a Montessori school, obviously. Um, and this notion of modeling what it's like to be curious and interested in something. And then what do you do with that itch? Right. John Dewey would call that disequilibrium. You have a disequilibrium and he wants you to pursue a purpose that you are interested and excited about. And you scratch that itch and that should lead you to another itch. And that's the whole joy behind learning right there is itch, scratch the itch, itch, scratch the itch. <laughs> I, love that. I actually hadn't heard that from John Dewey. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, when you say, when you're talking about role modeling curiosity, you're saying we as parents, by us getting excited about geckos with them. And right. saying, well, gosh, how could we learn more? Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, guess what? There's a resource called the library. There's a resource called the internet. These are free and open to everyone. Right. What would you like to do to learn more? Do you have a question about geckos that you want to pursue? Right. Getting people to design their own questions now, particularly now in a world with AI, right? Where like prompt engineering is the currency. You want to design your own questions in a world to seek answers. And people who are good question askers are better critical thinkers. My wow. my mentor, who's Elliot Eisner, mm -hmm. um, who's passed away, um, used to say, let's assess students by the quality of the change in their questions from the beginning of a unit to the end of the unit. Mm -hmm. And if you ask better, deeper questions, that is a real sign of learning. I think people um, who, you know, when people say it's complicated, I don't know, let's look into that, as opposed to it's black, it's white. It's red, it's blue, it's democratic, it's Republican, right? If people start to ask more questions and be more, more curious, they're turning on their, their, their that part of their brain that is, is um, uh, responsible for critical thinking. And, and I mean, in terms of curiosity, I think about just given the opacity of, of the future and how rapidly it's changing, it's, it's gonna be the kids who do not um, get into a passive mode of learning that are going to be able to navigate 
the this opacity and the, you know all these rapid changes that are going to be coming that we can't even predict. We can't predict. So the average kindergartner right now is going to live to be a hundred, right? Okay. So so we have a, a cool center at Stanford, which is um, the longevity center. They study longevity. And so you can't possibly learn everything you're going to learn between the age of zero and 21, because like you said, all this is going to happen. So what we can do as schools and as parents and families is give them the skills that have been absolutely critical all the way through and will continue to be critical, right? Mm -hmm. Which is communication, critical thinking, collaboration, self-regulation, right? Um, how to deal with change, how to deal with stress. That's another really interesting um, point that we we ask about in our surveys is, do you have strategies to deal with stress? And, and how confident are you that you have these positive coping strategies? We ask it in kind of kid-friendly language. Only 30% of our sample, and we've sampled 300,000 kids, only 30% of our sample feels confident that they have strategies to get them through stressful times. Well, guess what? you know, we're living in stressful times now and they're not looking like that's going to go away. That is a, that is a, a through line that we know is a human through line is you will face periods of stress, whether that's running from tigers or dealing with AI, right? And how do you then cope with it is a really critical skill to teach our children. So what happens when you face stress, right? A couple of things are going on in your body. It's that freeze or flight mm -hmm. um, reaction that is uh, physical, chemical, right? And so what you're trying to do in uh, the moment may be breathing, breath work, mindfulness, meditation, uh, go for a run, get your get, get your body to move, calm the brain. There's all sorts of ways to do that. But the interesting thing, and you know this about mindfulness and meditation yoga, is they work beyond that moment so that your body becomes accustomed to this and things happen like you sleep better. Mm -hmm. um, you are less um, uh, affected by the stress. It, your body takes less time to reaccommodate itself and get back to stasis, right? So there's those sort of physical things you can do that are very much about positive coping strategies. And then there's a piece of social emotional learning of other things you can do like how to self-regulate, which is how to take a turn, like as a kid, right? Which is how to not punch your your neighbor, right? How to um, how to listen, how to have empathy, how to name your feelings, uh, understand them and name them in order to tame them, right? There's all of that, so it comes together. I think the the piece that's been so helpful for me in my own personal mindfulness practice is seeing through the noise to understand what really matters. Yes. And let's talk about the amygdala hijack that sometimes happens to us as parents, right? We get scared about our kids' futures. Absolutely. How could we not, right? Absolutely. And we're such animals of comparison. So if, if, if most of the people in our tribe are taking this pathway to set their kids up for quote unquote success, then we must feel like we're neglecting our kids if we don't do that. Right. Uh, if through mindfulness, if I'm able to watch that process happen in myself, where I'm suddenly, I'm suddenly adrenalized, I'm flooded with cortisol, I'm watching what other parents are think are doing, I'm rushing to go sign my kid up for that through a sense of panic <laughs> that I'm feeling in my body. 
mindfulness helps me just pause and just ask some questions like right is this true is this is this actually aligned with when my wife and I sit down and think about what are our long-term goals for our kids' lives? Right. Actually aligned with, with what we're trying to cultivate for them. Right. So I'd say just that in terms of mindfulness is also just helps, helps us watch ourselves. Absolutely. And then reset to ensure we're aligned with our key values. But Sam, it takes someone really strong to do that because, um, you know, people who run companies, your company has its mission statement, its values. Yeah. We we used to run a class where we would have parents write a mission statement for their family. Beautiful. Because I was trying to help people understand how do you make decisions and what filter do you use to make those decisions? Well, at companies, they use mission statements. At schools, they use mission statements. Yeah. What are our values? Is this really a decision that aligns with our values? And in families, we don't really take the time to do that. And so when you are watch, you know, when you get to that, that sense of mindfulness and you can kind of take a step back and watch it, you do need to have a rudder or something that you're basing it on, whether that is a research-based parenting book or guide, or your, you know, your conversation with your partner and how we want to run this family, but you need it with input from the kid. Right. But, but, um, when you make decisions and boy, some of those decisions are going to be, you're making tons of decisions as a parent every day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and as a teacher at the school. Right. And, and so you, you, you need to come back to sort of a home base mm. and, and that's what we try to provide at challenge success is mm. research that's been vetted that you can read and understand, gosh, maybe it makes sense to pull all the devices out of the bedroom at night. Cause a lot of people are saying it. We should do that. Right. We should do that. Right. And I think one of the things that that is so important that we're trying to to I'm sure you are as well at Channel Success is like, how do we offer this without an extra helping of shame? You know what I mean? It's like there is no more shame. parenting shame. We don't. We don't. There is a, this is the hardest. Job. Well, there's two things I say to people, which makes me feel better as a parent is kids are resilient. Yeah. Right. Kids are resilient and forgiving. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And really, aside from sort of abuse, right? You're, you, it's okay to make mistakes. We're actually modeling mm. that people make mistakes in life and our kids are going to make mistakes and nobody is perfect. And how you deal with that is a way to really build and fortify that innate resilience that kids have. Mm. Um, and, and that's really comforting. And that you really do get do-overs. I mean, I so many parents say to me, I know I read your stuff, I believe in it, but guy, he just brought home a C minus and I just don't want him to close any doors for his future. Fair. Or don't sign up for the blah, 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 extracurricular. Is he closing doors for the future? Nobody wants any doors to close for the future. Guess what? There are very few permanently locked doors yeah. in your child's future particularly if you have the privilege of you know a house shelter food right if 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 you if you can get those basics met um there are very very few doors you can you can reinvent yourself um, many many times over a c plus in algebra is not a door closing in fact they're going to make your kids stronger 
I think that's probably where the subtext that I read in your work, especially around doing school, is a message to parents about you're really missing it yeah. with this, with this yeah. iopic approach. And that truly, if you look at the biographies of, of the people you admire, most of them have faced setbacks. Um, most of them, all of them have had meaningful failure and that to lead a life that is flourishing and independent, we have to be braver in our approach to parenting. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, one of the, there's some really cool things. Um, it started at Harvard, Stanford copied it. I think other colleges have it now too, is the, 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 the failure projects mm-hmm. where you, so they interview like Nobel Peace Prize winners and prof- they, they interviewed me and they said, talk to us about failure, right? Talk mm-hmm. to us about the times when you've really failed. And they make the college kids watch these videos. Wow. And, and they have, there's another video, this is really cool too, where they have people walking through the center of campus and there's like the head of the hospital and the president of the university and like random students. And you're supposed to pick up, there's the letters A, B, C, D, E, F on the ground. And you're supposed to pick up your lowest grade that you ever got. And there's so many people who pick up Fs, and <laughs> right? Here's the president of, of, of Stanford, you know, right. the hospital, right? Uh, chief of staff of whatever. And, and I think it's because a lot of kids who get to like the Stanford's feel like they can't ever fail. They're so wound up so tightly. They must, there is this one path to get into Stanford and then you, you get it. And if you let any kind of chink in that armor, Every, the whole world's going to fall apart. And we're trying to say, no, 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 no. So um, Denise, before we wrap up, can you share with us your top suggestions for parents who really want to do all they can to raise healthy kids in an often unhealthy world? Yes, I can. We have a mnemonic aid at Challenge Success based on science, based on the research around what are called protective factors. Protective factors, the the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Psychological Association, the Center for Disease Control, all these people agree, these are what kids need to develop in a healthy way through their teenage years. And we have put them all together and we have a mnemonic aid called PDF. And it stands for playtime, downtime, and family time. Playtime is that mistake-making, experimenting, curiosity, the things that we've talked about in this podcast, um, really letting the kid take the lead, let it be student-led, give them enough time. Some of that can be on electronics. Some of that should be not, right? Different ones for different ages. We have all sorts of stuff on our website for sort of what does playtime look like for different kids at different ages. The D, downtime, includes sleep, which would be like my number one, right? Along with those sort of coping strategies of meditation, mindfulness, yoga, is it taking a shower? Is it going for a run? Is it reading for pleasure, right? What are you doing with that downtime to get your body and mind to where it needs to be, including sleep and rest? And then the F is probably the most important, and that's family time. And family time, what the research says is ideally it's the whole family together about five times a week, about 25 minutes duration. So a lot of times that translates into a meal. There's nothing magical about the pizza or the chicken or whatever. It's literally making your family feel like a unit, a safe haven 
where people know they are loved unconditionally and they feel like they belong. So PDF, PDF, PDF. I can't thank you enough, Denise. What a treat. Oh, it's fun. What a fun jam session. Yeah.